God's Messiah, which just is a, a Jewish word for Savior, is coming in to reclaim uh, his throne. And they recognize this person to be Jesus, and they stand around and they take palm branches off of the trees and they lay them on the ground along with their cloaks uh, so that like a, like a uh, red carpet, Jesus riding on a cult could w- walk into the city of Jerusalem. That's why we call it Palm Sunday. It's an amazing event in the life of Jesus where the people cried out, our king has come, our Messiah is here. We call that Palm Sunday. So let's, let's throw up, I'm going to throw up a timeline so you can just see. That happened 2,000 years ago, Palm Sunday, okay? Jesus' triumphant entrance into Jerusalem, and then later, after spending the day in the city, he leaves the city and spends the night in Bethany, in Bethany, which is just a town right outside of downtown Jerusalem, okay? And Jerusalem has big walls. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not like Seattle, okay? There's giant walls, and so it's, it's cramped, so he leaves the city. Then comes Monday. Again, he, he's in Bethany. He leaves Bethany, and he comes back into Jerusalem. He curses the fig tree on the way into the city to teach a lesson about faith. Uh, then he weeps over Jerusalem. He goes into the temple court, which was the center of the city. It's where uh, people from all over the world on this week, which was Passover week, would come together to remember God's saving act, uh, freeing the, the people who were enslaved in Egypt uh, 1,500 years earlier. So, so that's why everybody's coming into the city on this particular uh, weekend, and uh, he comes into and he sees in the temple that people are uh, making profit off of these religious festivities. And so he comes in and he cleanses the table and he drives out the money changers. He says, my house is not a house of thieves. It's a house of worship and prayer. So that's on Monday. Then he leaves the city again. He spends the night in Bethany. And we get to Tuesday. This is sometimes known as Busy Tuesday. Jesus accomplished a lot on Tuesday. He leaves Bethany. He comes into the city. He sees that same fig tree that he cursed the day before, and it has withered. And so he teaches them how this is like the faith of the people of God, how their faith withers. And then he confounds and pronounces woes upon his enemies, who uh, were many at this time. And then he leaves the city, and he, and he goes and he does the famous Olivet Discourse, which is on the Mount of Olives, and he teaches about the end times. It's that same night, behind the scenes, that one of Jesus' disciples, one of the twelve closest to Jesus, uh, actually begins to bargain with the Sanhedrin, which are the religious leaders uh, in Jerusalem. They are sort of the political powers of uh, the Jewish people. And Judas, one of the disciples, meets with them and begins to bargain with them in order that he might make a buck by betraying his teacher, his rabbi, Jesus. Okay, that's Busy Tuesday. Then on Silent Wednesday, everybody's got to rest. <laughs> okay, so, you know, Busy Tuesday, Silent Wednesday, Seems to be that he stays in Bethany throughout all of the day and all of the night, spending time with those that he loves, probably. And then we get to Thursday, which is often called Maundy Thursday. On Thursday, Jesus sends Peter and John to make preparation for the Passover meal. Again, it was the the festival of Passover, which is one of the biggest festivals for the entire nation of Israel. So people were streaming from all over the world to come to Jerusalem on that day. And in fact, most scholars think probably at that time the inhabitants of Jerusalem were probably maybe around 10,000 people, but, but on a Passover weekend, there could be 100,000 100, people in the city. So, so lots, think of it, lots of people coming from all over into the city. That's what happens in cities, particularly during big festive 
weekends, okay? So uh, get, to get ready for, for them as Jewish, all the disciples are Jewish, Jesus is Jewish, to celebrate the Passover. He sends out Peter and John to make preparations. Then after sunset, they eat a meal together as the 12 in the upper room. And at dinner, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And in that time, Judas, the one who's planning to portray Jesus, flees. Then Jesus initiates what we practice every week, the Lord's Supper. He teaches them, do this in remembrance of me. They still don't know exactly what's about to happen to Jesus, uh, and it'll make sense to them later. Then they go into the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus prays to God, and he's in agony, knowing about what's coming down the road. And who's coming down the road? It's Judas and the Sanhedrin and Roman soldiers, and they've come to arrest Jesus. And Jesus is arrested and taken to the house of the high priest, which is the highest sort of uh, Jewish position in the land. It's both a political and a religious office at this point. And they have the first trial, Jesus before the Jewish authorities. It's at this time that Peter famously betray, or, uh, denies Jesus three times. This is all happening on Thursday. Now to Friday, which we know as Good Friday. It is black in some senses, but it's a good day because of what happens for us on the cross. Jesus has his trial now before the Roman authorities, Pontius Pilate, the governor of Rome, because Rome controlled Jerusalem. That happens in the morning. Then Jesus is scourged. The city cries, crucify him. Jesus is mocked. He has a crown of thorns put on his head. Jesus carries his cross to the gate of the northern, uh, uh, to the north of the city. Then Jesus is crucified around 9 a.m. Then at about 3 p.m., there's an earthquake. The temple veil is torn. This veil that covered the Holy of Holies, a place where only the high priest could go once a year, that is torn in two. Maybe related to the earthquake. Supernatural event. Then Roman soldiers pierce the side of Jesus to make sure that he's dead because they need to take him down before the Sabbath begins because you weren't supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. So they pierce his side and blood and water flow from his side. All this is happening while the Jewish Passover is also happening. And in the temple courts, lambs are being slain. Real lambs, like the animal lambs, are being slain because this was the ritual of Passover. To remember that we need atonement for our sin. All the while while Jesus Christ is also being slain on the cross. Jesus' body is taken down. It's then buried in a tomb before sundown. And the Sabbath begins Saturday at the request of the Jewish authorities, Pilate, the governor, grants a Roman guard to be set outside of the tomb for fear that maybe Jesus' disciples would come and try to steal the body. And then on Easter, Jesus rises from the dead and makes five appearances on that first Easter Sunday, first to Mary Magdalene, and she gives a message to the disciples. Then the other women who came to the tomb to prepare his body more fully since they didn't have time on Friday evening before sundown. And then two disciples meet the risen Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And then Simon Peter sees the risen Christ. And then Christ appears to the ten other disciples except for Thomas. Where in the world was Thomas? <laughs> I love Thomas. I think I'm a bit like Thomas. Thomas will get to see the risen Jesus on another day, just not on the first Easter. Bummer, Thomas. 
getting called out for the wrong reasons, okay? <laughs> Don't get called out for the wrong reasons. So that is, I, I hope that is helpful. I mean, we can kind of go through these rhythms as Christians uh, pretending that we know what's going on. And it's so important that we remember this really happened. This is a true life that was lived. These historical events were happening in real time. And of course, now we look back on them and we see how it all fits together. And so next Sunday, we'll focus on the resurrection piece of this story. On Friday, we'll focus on the crucifixion piece of the story. But today, I want to look at this first piece of the story, which is the triumphal entry into the city. And specifically, I want to take a closer look at the glaring difference between the claims made on Palm Sunday and, of course, then on Easter Sunday versus the claims made about Jesus on Thursday night into Friday. You see how crazy the difference is? And it highlights this timeless and profound dilemma that we all live in as human beings that that we come face to face with each and every day, which is how do we discern truth from lie? And it's no harder to do that than in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who is the most famous man who's ever lived, and so much has been said about him. And what makes this project even harder is living in an urban context. You see? I mean, think about what was happening on Palm Sunday as he's riding into where? The largest city in the nation of Israel. An international city. A hub of commerce and ideas. And it makes the truth versus the lies about who Jesus is even harder to discern. And guess where we live? In truly a global city. There are many people many ideas, and so in an urban context where we live, it is so challenging to discern truth from lie, and so we'll talk about that. This is nothing new, but we'll also talk about how there's great opportunity being a church in the city. We didn't just accidentally plant a church in the city. We didn't like close our eyes and say, let's go there. Oh my gosh, we're going to be in an urban context. What are we going to do? We are here for a reason because we think there's great opportunity, but we also know there's great challenge. And so we want to talk about how do we discern truth and lie, truth and error, truth and fraud in the midst of an urban context because we are a church in the city and a church for the city. We love this city and we love truth. And most of all, we love Jesus. And so we want to see all those things come into line. And this dilemma is everywhere. It's in the news in every conversation. It's literally all around us, and all you had to do was pick up the newspaper, which is what I did on Friday, knowing that I'd find great illustrations. I didn't realize how many I'd find. This is the New York Times. I'm just going to read you a few of the stories in the New York Times that highlight this dilemma, okay? Highlight this dilemma. I I wish I could just sit here with my coffee and read all these articles for you. I did this on Friday, but but. Here's front page, New York Times, Julian Assange, you know who this is? The founder of WikiLeaks, itself sort of a truth, uh, you know, propagator of truth is what what he would say he is. Um, And here's what it says, a divisive prophet of public rights to know, and it says this, Mr. Assange, he was arrested, uh, has always elicited fervent reactions. He has been hailed as a hero, on the one hand, of free information, 
or he's been despised as a treacherous criminal worthy of death by a drone. Okay? Well, which is it? Right? This man, this very famous now man, elicits many claims. What do we know? Here's another one. Sudan's spider is finally cast out of his web. Military ousts leader after his 30-year rule. So in the Sudan, there has been something of a dictator. And he is not, well, truth versus lie. What is true? Most, I think most in the West would say he is not a good man, not a good leader. But, he, but here's what's interesting. This article tells a story about a story that this leader has told for years and years. Omar Hassan al-Bashir loved to tell the story about his broken tooth. His broken tooth. As a schoolboy working on a construction site, he told supporters in January that he fell and broke the tooth while carrying a heavy load. The story was a way for Mr. al-Bashir, who was ousted Thursday after 30 years of an iron-fisted rule over Sudan, to play up his humble origins. So he would tell the story of, I was just like you working in the fields and I broke my tooth. The folksy image was a jarring contrast with Mr. al-Bashir's image in the West, where he was seen as a heartless warmonger, as a coddler of terrorists like Osama bin Laden, and as an accused architect of a genocide purge in Darfur that killed hundreds of thousands of people. But here he is. 30-year reign, how does he do it? He tells stories. Are they true stories? What is true of this man? Here's another one, still on the front page of the New York Times. 730, sorry, Boeing employees, I see you, Kurt. 737s bypass safety review by the FAA. One of these 737s went down, and uh, that's not good. It says this, while designing the, designing the newest jet, Boeing decided to make two significant changes to an automated system now suspected of playing a role in two deadly crashes on the, of the plane. Go down a little bit. One of the consultants said this. The more we know the more we realize what we don't know. <laughs> oh, gosh, that is not what you want to hear before you get on a plane. <laughs> Just assume you know everything, right? Okay, let's keep going because this is so much fun. Are you guys having fun? You don't even have to read this now. You can just listen back. So much good stuff. We'll skip that one, although that's, that's a good one. How about this one? Actor wins suit in Australia over articles accusing him of groping his co-star. The Australian actor Jeffrey Rush won his defamation case on Thursday against the parent company of a newspaper that published articles accusing him of sexual harassment. The case rested largely on his word against that of Mrs. Norville. In a statement after the verdict, Mrs. Norville said she stood by her testimony. I told the truth. I know what happened. I was there, she said. I would have been content to receive a simple apology and a promise to do better without any of this. In Australia, it is harder for those who have been sexually harassed to bring suit against because of their laws. Again, distinguishing truth versus lie. Someone is lying in this case. Someone is telling the truth. You see, it's everywhere. We can't get away from it. Let me just find... Oh, here's another good one. Prosecutors say uh, Michael Avenatti, who's a f sort of famous lawyer who brought charges against Trump uh, related to some hush money that was paid. Anyhow, enough said. Okay. <laughs> Prosecutors say Avenatti stole from his clients and lied about his business. Federal prosecutor in California announced on Thursday that he had been indicted of three dozen counts. 
The authorities accused Mr. Avenatti of stealing millions of dollars from five clients and lying repeatedly about his business and income. Tax fraud, bankruptcy fraud, wire fraud, bank fraud, extortion. And at the end of, of this uh, article, Mr. Avenatti responds, I intend to fully fight all charges and plead not guilty. I look forward to the entire truth being known as opposed to a one-sided version meant to sideline me. Who, who's telling the truth? Who's lying? You know, we have our opinions. <laughs> but it's just, it, it assaults us daily. One more. Ex-Obama aide indicted in a case linked to the Mueller report. This is all from, this isn't like a week's of the New York Times. This is one New York Times. His name is George, uh, Gregory Craig, a White House chief, uh, counsel in the Obama administration was charged on Thursday with lying to the Justice Department and concealing information about work he did in 2012 for the government of Ukraine. Mr. Craig, in a video posted on YouTube, classic, <laughs> ex-Obama aide, posts on YouTube, saying this, the charges against him are unprecedented and unjustified and expressed confidence that both the judge and the jury will agree with me. Somebody's lying, and somebody's telling the truth. And that's just in Friday's version of the New York Times. Are you tired yet? Are you, are you fatigued by the need to be able to say who's telling the truth and who's lying? I'm tired. And you might even say a life well lived is a life of discerning well truth versus error. And how do we discern it? and therefore live accordingly. This is everywhere. Um, in big ways, New York Times worthy ways, and in small ways. Uh, this week, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting, and this is kind of common, with my son, and uh, his mood changes, and he begins to say some really nasty things to me. He says, Dad, and he says it over and over again, and I'm not sharing this for any other reason of just saying this, this, this happened this week. There was a, a claim made, and I have to wrestle with, is it true? He says, Dad, you're a bad dad. Okay, we kind of, you know, at first we laugh and we say, of course we know what's going on. He's just, you know, he's a little kid. But you know what? When he says it to you 15 times in a row, you have to wrestle with it in your soul. Am I a bad dad? Is it like, is the source trustworthy? Probably not. <laughs> but he's also said, Dad, you're a wonderful dad, and <laughs> I like to believe he's telling the truth then. But honestly, e even, even in that case, I'm having to discern truth from lie, and I must wrestle with it. And I bet that's not the last time my kids are going to tell me I'm not doing a good job. <laughs> in fact, some of you who, who might uh, be on Instagram and, and saw my wife posted, uh, also this week, my, my three-and-a-half-year-old son told my wife, I'm going to send you to Jericho, <laughs> which is an awesome pastoral diss, <laughs> because guess what happened to Jericho? The walls fell on him, okay? And somehow he learned, he's probably learning about it right now, he's probably learning new ways to diss his parents, but he told Allie, I'm going to send you to Jericho, and in one moment, I'm like, I can't believe you said that, that's so mean. Another moment, I was so proud. <laughs> it's like, pastor's kid, he's, he's paying attention, good job. Thanks to our great, wonderful children's teachers, you're, he's, he's learning something, and you, you are not responsible for how he uses this knowledge. But is he telling the truth? I don't know. I hope not. 
Now, so there's, there's lies of all kinds floating around, and there's truth floating around. And um, one, one of the things that I've learned uh, in my time, particularly as an accountant, is that it doesn't really matter if a lie is intentional or if it's accidental. Um, I think in either case, it is a lie. So, so four years of being an accountant with Deloitte, I worked in audit and enterprise risk services, and <laughs> that's just cool to say. Uh, sounds really cool. It's kind of boring. But what you'd do is you'd get financial statements for publicly traded companies uh, with the clients I was working on, and, and they would make truth statements about this is how much money we made, this is what we own as a company, uh, these are the debts that we have, and it was the job of the accounting firm to come in and verify to some degree whether or not they're telling the truth, okay? And in accounting, we treat fraud or an intentional lie almost the same way that we treat error, which is unintentional lie. So it doesn't matter if the reason that you've misstated is because you were trying to misstate or if you just literally got it wrong. So, so whether or not uh, you were trying to propagate or spread an error in truth or, or whether you just accidentally did it, what we do next as accountants is the same. We admit the error when we do our public filing. <laughs> we found a large error. You need to know about this. And then we correct it. I was working in one client, a big department store, national brand, not Macy's, but kind of like Macy's, and, and I found out that for years they had been calculating, this is getting technical, depreciation of their capital assets incorrectly for years. And I couldn't believe that somebody who had done this job for my accounting firm hadn't found it before. I was kind of proud of myself. Uh, but I was, also, I was also really sad because um, the employees that were in charge of calculating this were the nicest people. Uh, they even had a nickname for me. I won't tell you what the nickname was. It was kind of endearing. <laughs> I found it out through somebody else, like, do you know what they call you <laughs> when you leave? I was like, oh, that's kind of funny, but kind of sad. Okay. <laughs> it has to do with a character from Lord of the Rings, so. <laughs> that's going to be the only thing that you remember from the sermon. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I was sad. These wonderful people had been pro propagating a lie, and it needed to be corrected. And some of us have been doing this about who Jesus is. We've been propagating lies about Jesus, and we need to reconsider what is truth and what is lie. And it doesn't matter even if our heart has been good in it. What matters is the truth. What is true and what is not? Now, this isn't getting any easier as history progresses. It doesn't get any easier. Jay Walker Smith, president of marketing for a firm called Yankelvich, <laughs> believes that, uh, he says in, in the 1970s, the average American was exposed to about 500 advertisements per day. And each time you hear or see or smell an advertisement, you are confronted with this need to flex this truth discernment muscle that we all have, okay? Every time we see an advertisement, we are, we are, we are encountering potential truth claims, and each ad tells us, your life would be better with me in it, I am, a better, I am better than my competitor, and I'm a better investment of your money and time than any other product that you could spend that money or time on. That's, that's basically what advertising is. Every time. In 1970s, 500 times a day, that's a lot of flexing of your muscle. Well, guess what? Walker Smith says, nowadays, that number's around 5,000 times a day. 5,000 times you are forced to flex 
this muscle? Is this true? Is this a lie? Add that to the daily exercise required because of globalism, religious plurality, the ease of access to books and podcasts and news articles, video streaming, the internet just generally. And not only are we assaulted with new, better potential products to purchase, but now we have new ideas and philosophies and causes and fads to discern. Is this truth? And, and so, our discernment muscles are tired. We're fatigued. We're greatly fatigued. Are, are your muscles fatigued? Do you feel this? I'm spending so much time on this because I want you to feel this. And, and you're not actually to blame. I mean, you could, you could walk through life covering your ears and your eyes, and, but that's no way to live. And so one way we've tried to relieve this fatigue is to throw in the towel and say, rather than run this marathon every single day, let's just change the rules of the game, and, and, and all, all we have to do to do that is believe one lie. And the lie goes something like this. There is no real truth Instead, let's just tell ourselves that everyone gets to make up some version of the truth for themselves. And that, that's the only lie that we have to believe in. And this fatigue-induced philosophy is what scholars call postmodernism. When it got too challenging and too tiring to do modernism, which modernism is just, I think we can find an answer to everything through a scientific process. We decided, as a Western culture, to transcend that project of modernism in favor of sanity and pragmatism. And so we just said truth is relative. Well, Christians can do the same thing. So should we? Because we're just as fatigued as the rest of the world. So should we just step off of the hamster wheel and breathe? Well, I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is because this lie, this one that sort of undergirds this new philosophy, was first introduced by a crafty enemy of God. The devil, Satan, the accuser, in the form of a serpent, in the first chapters of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, slithers into a garden, and he proposes this shortcut to discernment. And the lie the serpent used in the garden went something like this. Did God actually say, what if, what if, you actually eat of that fruit, and then your eyes are opened, and you are then able to, to define truth for yourself. Define good and evil and right and wrong. Where you should go and how you should live and who God actually is. You get to decide that. What if that's why he doesn't want you to eat it? It's nothing new. <laughs> this is not a new philosophy. It's as old 
as old as us, as old as God's enemies. And friends, trust me, I know that it's tiring to discern God's truth, who actually is Jesus. What has he done for us? What is he doing in the world now? What should we be doing? I know this is hard. I know that there are many claims masquerading as light, but it's worth, it's worth exercising our muscles again and again and again because it draws us closer to Jesus, because we must interact with him to know who he actually is. So do not grow weary. In fact, this is the work of our church, the work of considering. Uh, What's really cool about the word consider, wherever it's translated into English translations, uh, not wherever, but often, the Greek word that's used is actually, guess what? It's going to blow your mind. It's an accounting term. It's good to be an accountant. So when you see the word consider in the New Testament, it's an accounting term more often than not, which is just this. We need to take a look and audit (laughs) the truth and lie claims that we have before us and consider what is true and right and good and who is this Jesus? I'm excited to get to do that in community because in community, we come to the best conclusions. So look at this. Two completing, uh, competing conclusions about Jesus were made in one week. The first on Palm Sunday as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. As he rides into Jerusalem. So, we're finally there. Let's look at this account in Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, which recounts the life of Jesus from Nazareth. And we have an account here, and you'll see it in each of the Gospels, of this Palm Sunday. Matthew 21, verse 1. When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Then this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of the beast of burden. Now remember, we studied this in the book of Zechariah. We studied this prophecy. Verse 6, Now the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, um, put on them their cloaks, and Jesus sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. That's a kingly exclamation. The son of David was the rightful king. They're saying, the king is here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Wow. What claims were being made. Fantastic, amazing claims about Jesus. A true prophet of God, sent by God. The true rightful heir to the throne of David. Wow. What a great day. What a great day. But wait. 
just a few days later. Turn with me now to chapter 26. Just a few days later, a few conversations later, the crowd has changed its mind. And, and surely there were some that were there in the crowd that we just read about at Palm Sunday at the triumphal entry that were also in this crowd that now says some pretty harsh things. So look what happens as Jesus is before Caiaphas, the high priest, and the council. Uh, Matthew 26, verse 57 says this, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to the high priest where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now, the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God, they're quoting Jesus, and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, that is, if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robe and said, he has uttered blasphemy. He has lied against God. That's what blasphemy is. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, you Messiah. Who is it that struck you? Jump forward to Matthew 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, that's Pontius Pilate, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But Jesus gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. You see, truth doesn't need to always defend itself. It trusts that it's true. Now, at least the governor has accustomed, was accustomed to release to the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife had sent word to him, this is Pilate's wife, have nothing to do with this righteous man, she said, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor said to them, which of you two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They said, this is the crowd, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd, 
I am innocent of this man's blood. I am innocent of the discernment process. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Just days later, just days after other truth claims were made about Jesus, these are the kinds of things that the people were believing about Jesus. What could possibly account for this lightning fast change of opinion? And I propose to you today, at least part of it, was the city dynamic. Remember I said probably somewhere upwards of 100,000 people had come into the city from all over the world. Jesus was coming into this metropolitan hub. He was bringing his truth into a sea of truths. This is no accident. Jesus wants to be considered in the heart of cities in the hardest places for truth to be seen. And why is it so hard? Why is it extra challenging to discern truth in these places? Well, first, it's the sheer number. More people means more truth challengers, more competing narratives. In all major international cities, and Jerusalem was definitely one of those, you find quantity, quality, and variety when it comes to truth claims. This is where the best come to share their ideas. So they're not bringing weak game. They're bringing quality. And there's variety of quality. And there's quantity of quality. And they all are trying to share the air. This is why it's so tiring. Think, I mean, just think of the traffic of a city. This little automobile traffic of a city versus a rural setting or, or even the suburbs. That's, that's what it's like with these truth claims. There's just traffic. And so to go five miles feels like you're going 30. Cities also surround and operate based on money. Most people come to cities for some financial component. And money is powerful. And this would be no different at the Passover festival, which is where we find our scene now. The Passover festival, money is flowing into the city. This is an important time. You want to know why people spend so much, uh, cities spend so much money trying to get the Olympics or the World Cup or the Super Bowl to come to their city? Because it's like the Passover feast. It's the biggest party in the world. And money comes with it. He's like, wow, they spend so much money. They build stadiums just to have it. That can't be good finances. No, it's great finance because of the money that's brought in by festival. So cities, they operate on money. And where there's money, there's confusion. Motives are intertwined. Cities have power dynamics. This would have been true at the Passover feast as well. This is the biggest holiday for all of these Sanhedrin and Jewish officials. This is the place they get to sort of peacock and say, look at me, look at my robes, listen to what I have to say, and here comes little old Jesus, not looking like much, but gathering crowds. You feel the power dynamics. And so those quality, quantity, variety of truth statements, they want power, and so they compete. And then there's, of course, popularity. Cities, cities feel like a popularity contest. 
especially during these festivals. Everybody's trying to get likes and views and everybody's trying to get up the rank on Twitter. I don't even have a Twitter account. You guys are like, that's awesome. You, you, can, you, can, you can write something. In. How many syllables do you have? How many characters? How many, Galen? I couldn't do it. <laughs> I couldn't do it, okay? So we'll leave that to the professionals, okay? But don't despair. These are, the, these are the challenges unique to a city, just some of the unique challenges that make the discernment of truth and lie so hard. But don't despair, because where there are challenges, always, there is also opportunity. And there is great opportunity in the cities, which is why God sends his people to the cities. Uh, the first goes like this. Truth challengers always sharpen your own understanding and articulation of the gospel. You see, um, Imagine you're trying to convince somebody that the greatest movie ever made was the Shawshank Redemption. Great movie. In fact, I, I made up a thing once called Shawshanking. Have you ever heard of this? No, never caught on because I don't have a Twitter account. <laughs> Shawshanking goes like this, so you can do it. We're starting right now. Shawshanking. If it's pouring down rain, it's got to be pouring really hard. You just go stand out in the middle of the rain and you go like this. Shawshanking. Isn't that great? You should try Shawshanking. It's great. Great movie. You see how I'm trying to convince you of the greatness of this movie? Now, imagine if I was trying to do that, but the only movies that I had to defend the Shawshank Redemption against were the home movies that I made as a child. <laughs> and I made some really good ones. Like, seriously. The, uh, you know, I had one called Jimmy Bond, 0047, Golden Disc. This is true, by the way. I also made a movie called Seattle Vice. Lots of neon. <laughs> if that's all I had to compare Shawshank Redemption to, it'd be a pretty easy debate. But if I've got to compare it to every other truly great movie that's been made, you see, it must sharpen my ability to articulate the goodness of the Shawshank Redemption. Truth challengers always sharpen our own understanding and articulation of the gospel. Number two, the opportunity is it is so rewarding when truth is discerned amidst much fog. Uh, the truth feels even that much more true when you have to fight to find it. He said, the cream always rises to the top eventually, but if decisions are just binary, it might be hard to decide which option is clearly most intellectually honest, existentially pleasing, Reality correlating. And that's what we're trying to do with truth versus lie. Is it intellectually honest, existentially pleasing, and reality correlating? All three of those. So that can be hard if you've just got A or B. But when you have more competing claims bouncing around, you actually, actually begin to start to tell true truth much more easily over an error. I mean, wine tasting could be a good example of this. If you just had two wines and I asked you, okay, which of these is the better wine, you might be like, I don't know. Now, if you're a really good wine connoisseur, you might be able to tell. But, but wait, if, with a spittoon in hand, <laughs> I gave you 50 different bottles to try, now you might, even if you're a novice, begin to be able to see the distinction. You see that? But if it's just one or the other, have you ever tried this? I don't know what's good. I'm starting to learn, but actually the more options, you actually start to see characteristics of, 
uh, of goodness and truth and beauty, they begin to rise to the top actually the more inputs you put into the discerning process. And, and it does remove at least one defeat or doubt, which is this. Did I just choose this because it was the only option? In the, in the city, we don't have that problem. There's so many options. We didn't just choose it because it was the only option, right? I, I hope you see that. Like when you tell a coworker, yeah, I went to church on Sunday, they're going to be like, that's weird. There were so many other things for you to do. <laughs> But when Christianity was the only option, or if you lived in, say, a rural town where there's not much going on, well, sure. I guess it makes sense that you went to church. You see that? It removes. This is a great opportunity that you're sitting here today. is a great opportunity to show that there's something true happening here. Third, most, uh, the most potential to spread the quickest, or to spread truth the quickest, happens in cities. The most potential to spread the truth the quickest happens in the city. Why is that? Well, think, think about the Passover. Everybody from all over the world, all the Jews from all over the world, come back to Jerusalem on this one week. Now, imagine they are exposed to Jesus, and they come to find that he is true. Guess what's happening? They're not going to just stay there. They're going to go back to where they came from, disseminating the truth back across the world. Do you know that the whole country and many foreigners come to Seattle? Many times just for a season. All you have to do is go down to the Amazon campus or over to UW. I mean, both of these places are within walking distance for us. And the world has come to them. And the world is ready to try new ideas, encounter new ideas, to, to ask, is this Jesus true? And they came to us. We didn't even have to go to them. They're here in our city. You see how this, this is a great opportunity? It's also a great challenge because people are coming from many places with many ideas and, and they're entering their own ideas into, into the ring. But they're also expecting when they come to an international city to encounter new things and new ideas. It's like going to the state fair. You're going there knowing that you're going to do some weird stuff. <laughs> like eat, you know, deep fried banana. You're like, is that good? Is, is that good, Gregor? I don't know if that's good, but I'll try it at the fair because I'm going expecting to do weird things. You know, it's also like when in Rome phenomenon. I'm not sure how long I'll be here or if I'll ever come back, so I might as well explore something new. When in Rome. This, this is what's happening in urban context. People are expecting to encounter things, and then they're going to go back across the world taking that truth if they encounter it with them. It's such an opportunity. So there's real challenges tied up with being a church in the city and, 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 and all that, that happens here and all the distraction and, and all the discernment muscling that needs to happen. But there's real opportunity. And I want us to get excited about the opportunity, okay? Aware of the challenges, leaning into the opportunities. How can we know if the claims of Jesus of Nazareth to be the rightful king, the Messiah Savior, and the Son of God are true? or if they're a lie. That was happening on the first Palm Sunday, and it's happening today. How might you do it? Where might you start? You can start by looking at Jesus himself. The proof is always in the pudding. If we think Jesus is who he said he was, let's start by looking at his life, because his life will hint at truth or lie.
So what does his life tell us? First, look at his fruit. What is the fruit of his life? Well, it seems to be that he healed people. He brought wholeness to people. He loved people. People followed him because of the fruit of his ministry. He had real, deep, meaningful friendships. He had friends that were willing to die for him. What does this hint at? Truth or lie? Then we could look at his posture towards himself. He never tried too hard. Did, did Jesus, that's the thing, Jesus, he never tried too hard. You know, you know what lies do? They try really, really hard. Like if you have an inferior product, you have to spend twice as much money on advertising because you have to try hard to propagate a lie. Jesus didn't try hard. He said, this is who you say I am. <laughs> He's like so confident because his posture towards himself was, I am truth, not lie. Related to that is his lack of defensiveness. He trusted in himself as truth, and he trusted that with time and reflection, people would come to see that he is true. And they eventually did. Many, many eventually did. We sit here today because many eventually did. You see, lie, lies are always so defensive. Have you experienced this? Like, like, don't even think about somebody else. Right now, you're popping in your mind, and you're thinking of your spouse and how they lied to you, or your best friend. No, 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 don't do that. Think about yourself, and think about what happens when somebody calls you out and how defensive you get. Probably because you're not living in the truth. Jesus was never defensive because he was so confident in who he was. Then you could look at his larger agenda, you know, what are the things that lies are out for? What are the things that truth is out for? Well, Jesus was never about fame. He was never about fortune. He, he was never about sex. And he never, so he never hurt his own witness. No one could ever say of Jesus like, oh, yeah, see, he's doing it for the money. Oh, yeah, see, he's doing it for the fame. Oh, yeah, he's doing it for the sex. None of those things were ever said about Jesus, even by his enemies. All his enemies could say is, he's not telling you the truth. But he never hurt his witness because his larger agenda seemed so pure. And then finally, his accessibility. Jesus was so accessible. Truth isn't scared of being touched, poked, prodded, tested for authenticity. Jesus never hid behind a veil of mystery. It's one of the great ways to tell truth from lie. Is it accessible? Liars tend to want to create one step, step of removal so that you can never truly know if what they're saying or doing is the real deal. Jesus wasn't that. That's so beautiful. God came in the flesh so that we could test the truthfulness of who he was. Then you could look at his disciples. You could look at their teachings. You could look at their writings. You could, you could test whether the people that followed him had truth in the same ways that, that we've just said, fruit, posture, defensiveness, agenda, accessibility, all those things about the disciples and apostles and those who followed him. Um, the men and women who followed Jesus were of great reputation. That says something about Jesus as the truth. Most of them were willing to die. Most of them did die defending truth that they themselves wrote about him. Wish I had more time to talk about that. And the third, the test of time. I had, I had this guy at Alpha. He's at my Alpha table fantastic guy. The first time I met him, 
And he said something to me, and I said, I'm going to share that in my sermon this Sunday. And he was kind of like, whoa. Uh, He said this. He said, you know, lies are like wildfires. They can and will start really strong and spread really fast. They may even spread far and wide. But you know what, he said? They eventually burn out. And I was like, dude, that was deep. The claims about Jesus heard on that first Palm Sunday, they haven't burnt out for over 2,000 years. Truths that he didn't even pen himself. Why is that? How could that be? Maybe because they're not lies. Maybe they're truth. Maybe Jesus is the truth incarnate. He is the most famous person that has ever lived, period. And so, of course, there are many things said about him. And how do we, 2,000 years later, discern between the true claims and the false claims? Was Jesus the liar? When he said, I am God, and whoever listens to me and follows me will be saved and experience life to the full. Was he the liar? Or is every human being the liar? Because each of us at one point or another, probably at many points in our lives, say something like this, I am my own God. And therefore, if I listen to myself, I will be saved and experience life to the full. Who is true and who lies? This is serious, serious business. In John 8, Jesus says this, If you abide in me and by my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, anyone and everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, you're Jewish, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Now, this is interesting. Do we have that up here? Your father. What what is Jesus talking about? Jesus says, I've seen my father but you have done the things that you heard from your father. This is where it gets really intense. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the work that Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father, that your father did. Who's he talking about? They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, it's God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I am not here on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And finally he answers them, Who is their father? You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is so serious. It was serious on the first Palm Sunday, and it's serious now. There are lies in this world, and there's truth. And the job of every human being is to try to discern which is which. This is why I'm sharing this today. At the beginning of a week that, that hopefully will not just be a week of going through the motions, but it can be a week that provides the whole world a very special opportunity to reconsider and rediscern the truth and the lies of the historic person of Jesus. Even if you are already a Christian, you must not float through this week. Please consider the truth. Is Jesus who they said he was on Palm Sunday and on Resurrection Sunday, or was he who they said he was on Thursday and Friday night? It's that simple, friends. C.S. Lewis reminds us, Christianity, if it's false, is of no importance, and if it's true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So many of us say we believe in the Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday truth about Jesus, yet we live as though we just, that he was just a good man, crucified for radical beliefs. Something needs to change this week. Something needs to shift. The truth is, for many Christians, the majority even, I'd say, of American Christians, is that our Jesus is way too small. He's become just like a friend on the journey or a helper in tough times. But on Palm Sunday, we're reminded of who he actually was, the conquering king, the promised Messiah, the son of David, and the son of God. The crowd got it right on Palm Sunday, in my opinion. Even though they misunderstood the battlefield that Jesus needed to go to, which is the spiritual realm, to deal with sin, to crucify our sin on the cross so that we might be reconnected with God. That's the good news. They didn't quite get it on that Palm Sunday, which is part of the reason they so quickly changed their mind. And unfortunately, the distractions of city life for them fogged the truth, changed their opinion, and they began to call lies truth by Thursday and Friday. My prayer is that this Palm Sunday we will not fall into the same trap, that we will not be distracted by the many competing claims in this city about who Jesus is. We can only hope that upon hearing the good news of the resurrection that many who that first Palm Sunday, many who turned against Jesus by Thursday, Friday, that they did return to him. Even after they yelled, crucify him, that they returned when they heard the accounts of his resurrection. That is our great hope. We don't know how many did that. But that is also the hope of my, my hope for our city today. This Holy Week, that many would re-engage the discernment process, considering the claims of the many who have said that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, that he is no longer buried somewhere outside the walls of Jerusalem, but he's very much alive, ruling now at the right hand of God, waiting for all those to come to faith who he calls to himself. 
that many in our city, with all the challenges that confront them, would seize the opportunity of this week and every day to return to the faith that they may be once proclaimed or they come to find a faith in Jesus for the very first time. Friends, this is the most important truth you can hear. The most important truth that you can hear today goes something like this. God is not against you. God is for you. So much so that he sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to come near to us that we might touch and see that God is good. So that you might find freedom from all the lies which now rule in your life. Most importantly, the lie which tells you you are unlovable. Because, my friends, the gospel proves, the good news of Jesus proves this truth. God does love you. He loves you. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father, we feel bombarded and confused so many times about what is true and and what is false and how do we move forward and we're so tired, we're fatigued. Feels like everybody's lying to us. Feels like everybody has an agenda. Who can we trust? God, I pray today and every day that when we feel like that, we look beyond the crowds, we look beyond the pundits, we look beyond the pastors, we look beyond our family, beyond our friends, and we see Jesus. God, that that is who we look to for truth. He is truth. Help us look to him. Help us see through all the fog and look at him and consider him and know him and experience life in him to the full. I pray this for my friends. I pray this for our city, God. Thank you for placing us in this city, a city that desperately needs help discerning truth from lie, life from death, lightness from darkness, God. Help us to be ministers of reconciliation and ambassadors of life here in this community and in every community in which we participate. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.